You are listening to the Enormo cast. Hey there. Well, you still have Vanessa's sexy voice ringing in your head. And before you've started to furiously press the plus 10 on your phone, don't do it. Stop, stop, stop. Remember, there's a couple ways to help out some climbers out there and help out the EnormaCast and get cool shit sent right to your door. Go to belayspecs.com and enter EnormaCast at checkout for a discount on those glasses that will save your neck. And or go to peterwgilroy.com for climbing-inspired jewelry, accessories for both men and women, all handmade by Peter Gilroy, a climber, and enter Enormo at checkout for a discount and to help the podcast. So remember, belayspecs.com, EnormaCast at checkout, or peterwgilroy.com, enter Enormo at checkout. All right, next commercial. No, wait, wait. Just, just listen. Don't press the forward button. Not yet. Just listen. Come on. There's a long list of things that can cause you to fail on a climb. Fear, weak forearms, the moonshine the rando from Kentucky was passing around the fire last night. But you should never have to blame your shoes. And in a recent survey, podcast air quotes, Sportivas were the least likely shoe to be angrily whipped across a bouldering cave by that sweaty dude who thinks that blue V4 is totally V6. From legends like Demira to the Spry Otaki, Sportiva designs and builds climbing shoes to be loved, cradled, and cherished, not slammed in the dirt at the base of your proj in disgust. So if you want love, not hate, get on the good foot by swiping right to Sportiva.com or your nearest climbing retailer to check out the little bundles of love for your feet. Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, yeah, it's big place. That's, out. Out That's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Out. I'll say, you oh, really God. should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. I was afraid to end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is March 12th, about 9.30, and on today's show, episode 124 of the Enormacast, a conversation with sport climbing legend, Boone Speed. Sport climbing's been around long enough to have legends, and he's one of them. And actually, he's kind of a bouldering legend, and he's also a gym climbing legend in a way, having been one of the founders of Pusher Holds, who were sort of the first modern hold company. So yeah, three-time legend, this guy. That's who we're talking to today, Boone Speed. And uh, again, this one's a little bit late. Uh, I warned on the last show that it would be because I took the family to Spain, packed it up, normal baby, grandma, a normal mama. We all went to Spain for a couple weeks, and it turned out awesome. And, uh, you know, we were pretty uh, psyched we did it, even though it was full of Heavy baby tax, as I like to say, the baby tax, the uh, the extra time, effort, lack of sleep, and all the things that go with having a baby uh, were kind of amplified when you're in another country and you're on jet lag and everything else. But pretty stoked. We had a great time over there, and uh, I got out climbing like more than one or two days in a row, which has not been happening a lot in the last couple of years. So so forgive me for being a few days late with the Enorma cast. You guys are used to it anyway. I just had a pretty damn good excuse this time, so I thought I would bring it up. Okay, the only small bit of business to talk about this uh, this time around is just uh, I want to thank Black Diamond for being on board for another year. They've been the longest standing sort of paid advertisers on the show and very, very much strong supporters, not just the uh, 
not just the business, but I know a lot of the employees over there are listening and really enjoy the show. So just want to give a shout out to those guys because uh, I don't know if we'd be here without them uh, st- stepping up a few years ago and really supporting the show. So thanks again to Black Diamond. And that's it for today. Let's go on to Boone Speed, the Boone Speed interview. I was very happy that Boone agreed to sit down for the Enorma cast. He wasn't really aware of what it was, but he was game. And uh, the interview, I think, turned out really great. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And it kind of reminds me a bit of the Randy Levitt interview. And even though Boone wasn't necessarily a personal inspiration to me at the time, the way Randy was, he really frames himself in the history of it. He's not afraid to talk about uh, having put that influence in there. He's not cocky, but he's also not overly modest. And I appreciate that kind of attitude. Anyway, a good nitty-gritty climbing interview, this one. So I hope you guys enjoy it. The conversation with Boone Speed. I want to start by asking you what climbing is to you now. We're going to spend, I hope, a little time on your history, you know, and your relationship to Salt Lake City and this area. Um, but what is climbing to you nowadays? You know, for sure, climbing changed my life. And I still, I hold the, I hold climbing as, a, as an activity and, it, and also the climbing community in the highest esteem. It's like, it's, uh, I think it's a very special, unique activity uh, that is, Actually, there's almost no learning curve to actually having a great time on your very first time out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like sliding on snow or golfing or surfing or something that's got it where you just can't do it on your first day. Like anyone can climb on their very first day and enjoy it and have that have the same experiences as the best climber in a way. You know, you're overcoming your own fears and like insecurities or, or, you know, you're in a, in a tough spot, right. And right. you kind of overcome it, but it's an innate movement. It's kind of like walking down a sidewalk, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think that's not really answering your question. So you can just edit that out. There's no editing on the enormous cast. In fact, <laughs> in fact, the running joke of the show is that as soon as one of us says that's going to get edited out, it means it's staying. It's staying. So you just, yeah. No, so I just, you, I just jinxed it. No, so, you're answering my question. So, 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 so it, it's complicated. I, climbing, is it's right up there with my favorite things to do. I, I am at completely at peace when I'm climbing. At this point in my life, I've done it so much and I and I've been around it for such a long time that I have other interests that are that pull me. And right now the the one you know, I've I've always been an, I've always been a creative guy. I, I grew up in a in a in a house of in an artistic um, oriented house. My father was an artist. My mother's extremely creative. And, and I, that was always my, that was going to be my path. That's been an underlying influence and a passion of mine, regardless of what I'm doing to stay physically fit or to, for excitement. Right. So my, I went from skiing to climbing and now my thing is surfing, but they all share a sort of similar, uh, exploratory, uh, quality and, and moving around the earth right now. I have to say, and I have to be completely honest, I would rather be closer to the ocean than the mountains. And it's just because I've been around the mountains for, for my whole life. And so exploring the coastlines is is new to me and refreshing and frankly warmer. And, you know, it's like it's easier on my joints and my body, right? But um, as that relates to climbing, exploring the coastlines and places like Majorca and, you know, Venezuela and these places that are there's where there's climbing right on the ocean mm-hmm. is is like the greatest. It's like the greatest thing ever. Right. Sure. So climbing the, the act of climbing is is like it's my it's my piece. It's mm-hmm. my I'm right at home when I'm in the middle of it. And I love it. And your wife climbs. My wife. Climbs. You guys met through climbing. Yeah. Well, we met. Yes, through climbing, but sure. also through mutual friends, and we've mm-hmm. kind of orbited around each other right. for for many many years. Okay. And I've been a good friend of her brother's for a long time, and I've known I've known Bailey, uh, Chris Bailey, Bailey forever, you know, and we're like kindred spirits, you know. Great. Well, so in terms of like uh, even just moving away from the philosophical part of it, you you know, do you, what do you do with your climbing time these days, and how much is there? Is there like a big drag between the two um 
is she still climbing and you're surfing? No, Are you guys all doing all this no, stuff No, no, we're doing the exact same things together. I mean, okay. We just spent three weeks in Mexico surfing okay. and we're both dying to get back there and surf more. Um, and if I, But that said, if I didn't have a hurt finger, I'd be just as fired up to go climbing cool. right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm still susceptible to injuries and I have a hurt finger right now and it's really frustrating. Right. I, it's, it's, I'm mystified by the problem that I have in my finger and, and it's not seeming to get better. And so it's really frustrating. So, you know, surfing is the, is the better call, but we are, we were tracking to climb hard this autumn oh, okay. and springtime and summer. And we just have to split our time. I mean, look, I, I did my best climbing. I'm never going to do as good a climbing as I did, you know, when I was in the right place at the right time in mm-hmm. my mid-20s, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me nowadays, I'm excited to go out and I, I want to I be 8A fit. I want to be able to climb 8A where, wherever I'm at. Sure. And that's typically some limestone <clears throat> or sport climbing crag someplace, mm-hmm. you know. And and if I can if I can eke out a few harder routes, that's great. But the thing is, is that the amount of dedication that it takes me to climb a really hard route, I I just feel like at this point in my time in my life, it's better to to spend that time doing something that's more. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to chase my past. Right. You know what I mean. So so I feel like I, if I can be a recreational climber and climb eight A's, that's opens up a lot of terrain for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and makes me feel good. It does. So you can do it. So I can do that, okay, you know, cool. and, I, and I love that. Right. But, you know, I'd like, I have a couple of hard routes I'd still like to get done. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but when I think about, you know, spending a month, you know, let's say I want to go back and do Necessary Evil, which is like all my buddies, old buddies are like, you got to go back and do that route. And it's like, you know, it's like sometimes I think about that. And, but the reality of it is, would I rather spend a month in, St. George trying to do necessary evil or would I rather spend a month if I've got a month to do something would I rather go to surfing for a month in Indonesia you know the answer quite honestly is probably I'd rather be an Indo yeah no I think uh, I don't I mean uh, you know I just flash to the the cold weather temps and the highway and the, oh, the noise and like you and like 10 other dudes like all giving your burns on that thing yeah no I think your Indonesia idea is much better <laughs> It just seems like better time better spent at this time. Yeah, well, at this I point mean, in my life. How much time have you spent at that cliff? Yeah, a lot. Right. And the thing is, is like that route is, you know, that route, Andre did it in 45 minutes. Right. And so, and that's the state of the, that's the state of the art right now. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a route that that grade has been onsited multiple times. Mm-hmm. And so what difference does it make if I do it or not? It doesn't, you know. I'm I'm grateful for the moment in this you know I'm grateful for like being for my place in the history of the sport you know yeah. and I consider myself really lucky to have been there. Well let's seg into that actually um because we're in Salt Lake City actually which was sort of your old stomping grounds. I actually thought you lived here still which you don't you live up in Portland at I've the moment. Lived, yeah. I've lived in Portland yeah. kind of on and off since the late 90s okay. and I've been there like full time since mid 2000s. But you grew up in this area. I grew yeah. up in Utah. Yep. Okay. And uh Down by American Fort Canyon. Okay. So let's kind of put that in perspective. In my perspective, I started climbing about nineteen eighty nine. You were a little before that, I think. Um yeah. we're we're about five years difference, I think, in age. Not that that matters when you start, but you know, I was like this dyed in the wool tratty from the beginning. And basically though, sport climbing didn't exist. At, at the time both of us started yeah and you guys and your cohorts and i'd and i'd love to talk about some of the folks you were climbing with too here were on this really first wave of american sport climbing yeah isolated pockets of it you know still you know could could result in angry words if not fists in yeah. certain parts of the country uh so can you sort of put your beginning in perspective and and you know maybe how that drew you in this idea of bolting an American fork and all those sorts of things, you know, what were the influences that got you not just into climbing? Cause that's, you know, that's probably a short story, but how was it that while I was like steeped in the wool, you know, with track climbing at the exact same moment over here, you guys were, Whoa, this is what I want to do. Cause I well, think my path was probably more common at the, at the time. With all due respect to pioneers, like, Steve Hong and 
Leighton Core and these dudes in the desert and Merrill Bitter and Steve Carruthers and all these guys, with all due respect to them, climbing was pretty sleepy otherwise in Utah at the time. And it was like, you know, you'd read a climbing magazine and it was all Colorado. There was a bunch of stuff in the news about Devil's Tower and about the Shawangunks and about um, Joshua Tree in Yosemite at the time, obviously. And um, and Smith Rock was just starting to come up. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, and those were the places that people read about. They didn't. There was very little happening other than fallen arches. I, I remember being blown away when it was like, oh, there's a five thirteen in sure in in the state of Utah. Wow. And that seemed really cool in the mid 80s when I started climbing. You know, we had a bunch of scrappy little crappy rocks where I started climbing down in Provo. Uh-huh. And the very first day I went, we threw a top, I, the dude I was with threw a little top rope up on this quartzite wall. And there was a guy underneath doing, I was like, what's that guy doing? And, he, and it was like, he's bouldering. And it was a it was a guy that became a really good friend of mine, Jeff Pedersen, who's had a pretty, you know, it has a really strong imprint on this on the sport as well, actually. And um, he was bouldering, and it was all about just the movement of climbing. And so this is the very first impression that I had of climbing. And there was no talk of there was no majestic lines. It was like it was like oh, I can throw a top rope up on this thirty foot piece of quartzite or i can boulder half that height without any of this other stuff on and this is you know this is like 1985 and so you know i made friends with Pedersen, and i made friends with a guy an older dude who who had boundless energy i was you know almost about 20 years old at the time and and uh and this guy, Bill Boyle, who was in his mid thirties and, um, and there was a bunch of other people, but the three of us kind of were over the course of the next two or three or four years, sort of, we were kind of the, the main three threesome that kind of went out and, you know, we each kind of had a, had a role to, we each kind of found our, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the Beatles or, or, you know, it was any kind of, it was just good chemistry. And right. we all, we all, you know, if, if you, if you compared it to a band, it would like, we, we all had our place in the band. Right. And, and um, mine was definitely like, I can do harder climbing than anyone around me kind of. And it was like, it was, it was a really uh, a big confidence booster for mm-hmm. me. And it just seemed climbing just the, the, what seemed difficult when I looked around, I was like, that's, this isn't hard actually. Right. <laughs> this, is, this is like, just not that hard. And, uh-huh. and, um, and so, you know, hard climbing became something that I found solace in and, and a lot of self-confidence and, and, um, and then we started developing kind of ferreting out little roots in these little places. Mm -hmm. And, um, this is before the power drill and all this stuff. And, and, uh, and there was no resistance to it. Nobody was like, ah, you know, this has been rat bolted or this has been such and such. And, 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 and this, and we, you know, my buddy, you know, Jeff and Bill and I were down in down in Utah Valley, down by American Fork, down in Provo, and then there was the Salt Lake contingent, which consisted of Conrad Anchor and and guys like that. And they Muggs were was up here, right? Muggs was up here, but he wasn't bolting as okay, much as guys right. like Dana Hauser and Merrill Bitter okay. and and Conrad Anchor. They were really prominent guys doing doing a lot of the bolting up here. And the and the guidebook authors, you know. Stuart Ruckman, um, especially. And over a couple of years, we started to compare notes and the guys from Salt Lake would come to Provo and try our routes and we'd go up to Salt Lake and try their routes. And there was a lot of camaraderie um, and there was never like, oh, this got rat bolted or this mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like one that weird, really weird time when there were sport routes and you would, you would have bolts in them, but you would also have like this odd, you know, life you know, you know, like life and death piece of pro that was like an HB, right? Like stuck right. In, you know right. that you'd have like stuck in this little quartzite crack. I mean, it was a really weird time, right? And we were just making it up as we right, go. Right. We didn't have the constraints or the history of these that was that was constraining us in any way. Right. And guys like Mugs and these old, you know, these these seasoned alpinists mm-hmm. were a hundred percent behind it. Like they they came out and enjoyed the fruits of our labors you know what i right. mean like somebody 
Conrad would rap bolt something and call it, you know, something like Rebel Yell. And it became, you know, 25 dudes would line up to do it and just like hoot and holler and, right. and try to get it done. You know what I mean? And Yeah, I guess there wasn't like the weight of a place like Boulder or whatever. With oh, I can like still remember those those letters to the editor right. in Climbing Magazines right. that you used to pour over. And it was Christian Griffith versus Mark Wilford in right. this war of words, you right. know, this written war of words. And and the the stories that I'd heard about in, you know, California mm-hmm. that, that, you know, and I ended up becoming friends with all these guys. Well, yeah, it all mellowed from out. From Backer to it all like, Wilford and yeah. Christian and all these guys were all, you know, at the end of the day, I guess it's a little bit like politics, you know, you're all it, behind the scenes. Everyone's just like shaking hands mm-hmm. and kind of enjoying beer Eventually. together. Eventually. Eventually. You know? yeah. yeah. There's, I don't know if there was, it was quite that smooth out there in Boulder, <laughs> but um, well, it wasn't. We know there was there was things happening to each other and bolts getting chopped and flattened and blah blah blah. But so you you mentioned a couple things when you were talking earlier about climbing now and when you were just talking about like that you found that you were good at it and you mentioned this idea of like you were finding solace in it, you were finding self confidence in it. What were you like as a kid? That I mean, is that just you're talking about normal teenage angst, or or, well, or was there like a was this like something that you were no, sort of how deep do you want to go, dude? Well, we can you know <laughs> go a little way. Well, you know, I grew up. I grew up as a. I feel. I feel like I grew up as as a bit of a misfit. Okay, I had a funny name. I grew up in it, dude. <laughs> you know, actually, I was gonna actually open this with asking you if you like ever wake up wondering if you can live up to your name you have an awesome name you have like the most awesome name ever well, I but up, I, I get it if you're a kid it's probably it not was, the most you awesome know name. i don't but as an know, adult seriously sir your name is awesome <laughs> i'm proud of my name and it, it's it's been a it's been probably one of the greatest i mean it's it's been a great gift for my parents mm-hmm. you know what i mean um but it was it was tough you know i was a skinny uh kid who grew up um in a fairly small home, you know, I I have one sibling that died and another younger sister who's quite a bit younger than I am. And and it was, you know, and I grew up in a very small conservative town, blue collar um, area of of uh, north of Provo, between Provo and Salt Lake. And um, I feel like my teenage years, junior high and early high school were extremely difficult um, mm-hmm. for me. You know, and I wasn't super confident and I, and you know, and this is just, just, that's just being frank. Right. And, and then, you know, coupled with growing up in a, in a, you know, Mormon, my parents were Mormons and I was raised as a Mormon kid. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, it's, I mean, no secret, I, you know, questioned all that and kind of didn't make that much sense to me. And that, that was that, but all of those things kind of happening around the same time, right? right. 15, 16 years old um and you know i didn't have a lot of personal struggle with any of that stuff as much i guess i've my parents raised me to be really confident they you know they always told me i could do whatever i wanted and they were extremely positive and extremely supportive but socially i felt like a misfit um and and that was and that was extremely difficult for me um at least personally that was mm-hmm. the hard part it's like it was never my own self confidence it was more like um, I always felt like an outcast, and and the and the thing is, is like I probably was, and I probably should have been. And honestly, I've always been a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And these these cohort uh, you mentioned the that you were climbing with were these guys your same age, or was there an age difference? So so Bill Boyle was thirty five years old, right? And I think he just wanted. I mean, this is back when nobody was climbing. Sure. You know what I mean? This is back. My first pair of shoes were Firays, and that was like, you know, the, there was like two shoes on the market, right? Mm-hmm. Well, three, EBs, Firays, and some like the purple La Menestrelle, so Sportivas, right. you know? And right. it, it was just a super small, small peop, group of people, you know? There's no climbing gyms, no no way to, to get into it. So it was really accidental, I think, in, in a lot of ways that we all got into it. And so we ended up, climbing together because that you know it's like that's that's who was climbing and mm-hmm. we were all able to climb sort of 511 when and 512s when that was that seemed to be a big deal mm-hmm. believe it or not yeah no we believe it 
you know? Yeah. I mean, people nowadays can't believe that. People start on 5.11. And right. I mean, we, like that was, people were getting, you know, credited with onsighting 12Bs, like in the press. Certainly. You know, back in 85. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I've, th- we've gone down the road, that road on this show over and over again. Over and over. Yeah, because I'm that guy. Like, I mean, I, I'm a little bit behind you, but yeah, there, that, you know, you didn't just go and climb 511 out of the gates. No. Like, that was insane. No, so. you knew everybody's name in town that could right. climb 511. Right. Yeah. All six of them or four. <laughs> yeah. Of them, whatever yeah. it happened to be. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think it's interesting still that, uh, yeah, the grade kind of thing has just gotten sort of nuts, but, um, I wanted to ask you though, with that, like you're this kid, you, you've got, you know, whatever issues you're, you're dealing with all of a sudden. And this is something I'm always interested in when I hear about it. It's like, you're all of a sudden hanging out with these adults kind of. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, I find that kind of interesting in climbing and it's gone on forever. It still goes on. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, another thing we t- talked about on the show a lot is that it seems like it's a kid's sport these days because of the gyms, but it was really an adult sport, Yeah, you know, in, in the 90s and the 80s. and what I mean, it was like, it was not for kids. When but, you had to go through yeah. some kind of an apprenticeship, right? You needed to find a mentor and you needed to go through this apprenticeship and it was like dangerous. And mm-hmm. there was, it was... Um, now the learning curve is accelerated. It's sure. just, it's just like it. It took me a long time, even as an adult, to like accept the idea of falling because I spent the first four or five years of my climbing career t- trying to avoid falling. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, because the because you were you didn't necessarily just want to take thirty footers on gear all the time. No, you know no I mean it wasn't don't. routine. He still, don't. you know, <laughs> and he watched these kids go up, and you know, these guys in, at Oleana are just like going 20 feet between bolts just like with complete disregard for any sort of they don't there doesn't seem like they're scared doesn't seem like they care about whipping 40 feet or any of that stuff you know do you still have that this is an aside but do you still have that floating around in your brain because i do yeah it's definitely hardwired like to (laughs) fall i mean i don't want to run out 20 feet on a sport route even if it's deep even if everything around me tells me it's like I can lob off of this thing, no problem. I still get on site. I get scared. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Like on site, I'm still I'm still uh, quite nervous. You know, getting run out that far. Once I'm red pointing, it's just like I'm completely robotic and I don't think about it at all. So let's kind of fast forward a little bit to like past this apprenticeship, past these like early days into when you and a and again some cohorts were kind of the vanguard of like hard sport climbing in the United States? Well, we, you know, I mean, for sure, guys like Christian Griffith and Alan Watts up at, up in Smith Rock, mm-hmm. you know, started that process in America and Randy Levitt to certain to a certain degree out in California at the time. And there were people that we were reading about that were doing this. And then, of course, the magazines were, we were reading a lot about the Europeans, Patrick, Wolfgang, all these, Jerry Moffat, all these cats that were, I mean, sport climbing just seemed like the way. Mm-hmm. And going back just a little bit, I, never once did anyone ever, when I was learning how to climb, did ever, ever once was hanging and lowering to the ground even considered. It just didn't, it, it never it occurred to us. It's like, who made that rule up? That doesn't seem, when I heard about it, I was like, oh, that would have never occurred to me. Like, I, if I, if I, fall off on a top rope trying to do something. I just hang there and try to figure it out and carry on. Right. So you know? you're talking about, and it, it, like to frame it again, and every once in a while this comes up on the show, but it, it's like ancient history to a time when you just, you were not allowed to hang there and try the moves. You were supposed yeah. to, if you fell, you lost the game, you lowered you did, to the ground. The, the, the mountain defeated you. And now you have to give it a fair chance by going back to the ground, like AKA hang dogging, like hang dogging, which is a word that is being lost in the mists of time because dogging, I guess you still call it, but it used to be a pejorative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you were not supposed to do it. Right. But once again, you guys are in this like isolated zone where nobody's telling you what nobody's to do. Exactly. So we're free to just (laughs) climb the way we think it should be done. Mm Mm-hmm. And and then fast forward to this really important moment in history that I think a lot of people sort of go, aha, that makes sense. 
you know, Christian and Alan and all those guys were doing all of their development and kind of in their own way with hand drills. So they were hanging there and banging out these things. That the 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 electric drill, the Bosch, had probably the single biggest impact on the evolution of the sport. Mm-hmm. And it's and it hit Europe and Europe introduced it to us within six months. And that was and it, we were off and running. And that and and you know, when when we I mean I wanted to move at some point, maybe in like the late 80s, 88, 89, I was, I was becoming a good climber. And I was, you know, one of all already climbing 513. And, and that, was, like that was early, a big deal. early 20s, early at that 20s point? Okay, at yeah. that point. And that was when 513 was still a big deal. And, you know, it was like, um, there's a few people, I guess, that would argue that. But I mean, there was a couple, three eight B pluses in the world, 14 A's, right? Mm-hmm. And you could name them. And other than that, it was like 513. And 13C was like, you're a world-class climber at this point in time and and 13D for sure. And there was a couple of 14 A's out there, you know? That was that that was between like 84 and 88. And then and then we got introduced to the, 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 the Bosch mm-hmm. and it opened up all this new terrain. And so d- around 87, 88, I was... I was on my way to becoming a good climber. And this is something that I wanted to pursue. And I, w- I wanted to move to El Dorado Canyon. I wanted to move to Boulder. I wanted to move to a place like Smith Rock um, in theory, right? But my life was in, my life was here in Utah. And I was in, I was studying graphic design at the time. And, you know, I, I had a life here. And we started to look around for rocks locally. And, you know, it's like, is there any climbing in American Fork maybe, you know? And so and so Jeff Pedersen and I went up there and, you know, over the course of six months, sort of ferreted out a few routes. And there were a couple of other dudes that were helping us and there was some fits and starts and some, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so succinct as the way I'm presenting it. But, mm-hmm. but you know, in the winter, I put down my ice tools and we went down to, Red Rocks, and we developed the Wall of Confusion, where like where um, fear and loathing is, and the gift and the gallery mm-hmm. wall, and that was really the beginning of like kind of like grid bolting in a way. You know, we just went down there with this hand with this with this power drill and kind of did that. And um, yeah, the guys would yell at us from the road, honestly, and be like, "We're chopping your bolts and right. stuff like this." So you you finally got your toe into that scene. Like getting out of, like yeah, out of yeah, and that and that was a big deal. And then we kind of and it and it and it was if you've ever and a lot of people have been to the gallery at Red Rocks, and it is a perfect sort of scenario for that sort of. It's a perfect outdoor indoor crack, right? right? And it's just a perfect scene for that. And but we took that idea back to a few of these walls in American Fork, and mm-hmm. we thought that there might be. 25 30 routes up there that would and we all we thought that there would be 513s in American Fork and that's really what we were looking for. Right. And within 6 months of really developing American Fork, we found the Hell Cave and the Hell Cave was kind of you know this extremely steep. It might have been the steepest crag in the world at the time. I'm not sure that it was, but it might have been. And the way that we bolted that was on ladders. And so it was the power drill and ladders. Otherwise the Hell Cave doesn't get done in old in the olden days. Right. You know, in 1986, you're not developing the Hell Cave right. without a power drill. You know what I mean? Well, no. You, I mean, that was the thing is is, is that yeah, sport climbing it didn't just pop in and it's like in its form that is in today. Yeah, you know, even the guys like Christian, they they had kept all this stuff from that was was leaking over from track climbing to where they were bolting roots, but they were bolting them ground up. Ground and, up, and, yeah, and the, and the people, the I mean, again, like sport climbing in a lot of ways was a pejorative as well, yeah. And so they, you know, because it's all bolts, they started to, to get you know in their grill. But you go up on some of those routes, and like you mentioned, wanting to move to El Dorado Canyon, and like some of those routes that were so controversial are totally terrifying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they're they're super like widely girl. Sp- yeah, like Paris girl. They're like widely spaced bolts. You're gonna ground from like forty feet up. Same at Smith, man. People yeah, talk Smith, about that yeah, totally. And you a lot know? of them, not in Eldo, but other places, whether it's Smith or the Verdon, like 
the early Patrick routes are terrifying. Yeah. You know, you got to be, when you're climbing like there, you got to make sure you, you look at the date. Yeah. Because you're going to go down, you're going to see some bolts, and but they're going to be really far Super apart. Far and they're not going to be on the crux. That's the other funny yeah. thing. Because they couldn't stop and drill on yeah. the crux. Yeah. So the, the days of like the perfectly placed crux bolt, that didn't exist. Yeah. It's like terrifying. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, things like it still did ease in to what you guys were doing up there. And you can't hand drill on upside down climbing. No. I mean, you can, but you need a ladder. I mean, you, you can need, now because yeah. we've, we figured out ways to do it. So yeah, like who would? Kurt Smith did a bunch of ground up development at, at rifle and i mean it becomes like is it easier to go from the ground up and yeah. drill a bolt ladder well, or about hand, hang or any of that stuff yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and there's just no way you were going to do that and it's hard enough with a power and drill. there's and, and the thing is you have to realize that it took a hundred roots in american fork before we actually even considered the hell cave as even viable it's mm-hmm. not like you go from from bouldering in little cottonwood canyon at the gate boulders on these old steve honk problems to straight into the hell cave right and going oh this we'll is, right this is amazing climbing right. you know what i mean like you have to take baby steps and the overhanging climbing at the gallery and you know i mean yeah. when fear and loathing in las vegas that route that five that 12a out there it's like that seemed we were wondering if it was even feasible right, when, climb when we put bolts in right. it. And of course it is. It's yeah. like, but when that's the steepest route you've ever seen in mm-hmm. your life, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, and that be, that's the, that's new, you right. know, it's like, it seems absurd, you know, it so, overhangs like 40 feet right. in 70, you right. know, and you're like, holy cow. What, uh, what, I'm trying to like, I don't want to get caught on this too much, but I'm trying to picture the ladders what you guys so are up to. It's the, not very tall. So it's not very tall. So but and the and the ground kind of sketchy. follows the ground kind of follows it up, oh, okay. right? So it was a combination of ladders um hanging on hooks, um aiding out the what's called Wasatch reality as a crack and then mm-hmm. putting some bolts in from the top down. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just engineering these routes sure. however you can right. and again making it up as you go and and, the, and and so in the case of Utah, what really put, what really got the, got everything given, gave it another major kickstart mm-hmm. was, that was just a complete coincidence, was the 1988 snowbird competition okay. that the entire world came to. And Trebeau and Rabotu and Patrick and the best climbers in the world, the ones that you read about in the magazines, all came to our this little sleepy joint, and the best thing that they had to do was to they'd heard about American Fork, and they went down and you know a lot of these routes they got first descents on because they they hadn't been done yet. Right, you know, it was like eight A's and eight A pluses and stuff like that, and um, that really you know all these things happen, and then you end up with this like legendary spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it set out to make a legendary sure. spot. I mean, we we were just basically polishing turds. Mm-hmm. That's what we had, and that we did the best with what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I think that if American Fork and those early days of developing in American Fork did anything, it was that guys like Porter Gerard, who went, you know, he went. Well, we've got some. We've you know, we've got some untapped potential in the Red River Gorge. And right. You know what I mean? Like guys went back to their homes and, you know, Rifle came after, you know, it's like yeah. they'd been ice climbing in Rifle and then all of a sudden Rifle looks like, looks pristine compared to American Fork and mm-hmm. it's like, and longer and better, you know what I mean? And so guys all of a sudden took what they'd learned from American Fork and applied it to all these other crags that are arguably miles better, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But, um, uh, and then, and then, and then, you know, a year later, we started developing Southern Utah, Southwest Utah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So down by the, what well, we were talking about earlier, the Gorge, VRG and stuff Verge, like that. VRG and all those, you know, black and tan right. and all those things were, um, it was like an Easter egg hunt out there uh-huh. for amazing limestone. So how long would you say like this, you know, seeking new cliffs, bolting was dominating your life? 10 years. 10 years. So like through what, your 20s into your 30s? Yeah, basically, I mean, it was it was uh, probably 
seeking new cliffs um, and developing these areas and not roots, but areas Mm -hmm. um, was a major, like a major focus in my life from probably 88 until 95 and and in 90, 97 even and Mm -hmm. 98 because, because that, that trailed off into developing bouldering areas mm-hmm. like Joe's Valley and Ibex and things like that. Right. So in terms of your background, the the conservative, you grew up Mormon, you've got a father who's, a, who's a, what's his first name? Ulysses Grant Ulysses. Speed. <laughs> oh, that's right. I read that the other day and I was like, whoa. He, he was a, he was, you know, he was a, he was ra- born and raised in Texas. He was an honest, cow, a true cowboy. And so, that's a, in, another interesting part of my being a little bit of a of a renegade climber. I never got heat from my parents. Okay, that was that's what I was going to get to. It's like, what were their ideas about this they way that you were expressing yourself? Okay, they were extremely proud of my of my career and my. Um, they just were. They've been nothing but supportive of my um, sort of life off the beaten track. Mm-hmm. And um, we've really never, ever, really the subject of religion hasn't really ever come up. Okay. I was going to ask you, you, you've, you've walked away from that. Yeah. And for me, it was a little bit like, kind of like the day that you learn that there is no Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. You don't ruminate over that, right? You're five. You're like, oh, there's no Santa Claus. And I'm bummed. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you don't sit and ruminate over it for a long time. You know what I mean? It doesn't, Mm -hmm. you you look at it and you go, oh yeah, of course there's no Santa Claus. It doesn't make any sense to me. Right. You know, (laughs) like you don't sit and wish that it was true. It was for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. For the rest of your life. It's just like, for me, that's, that was sort of the way that I dealt with, with the way I wanted to proceed in my life. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, I, I want to try to stay as respectful as as possible because there's a lot of respect in my family and, you know, I have extended mm-hmm. family and people are free. This is a free, I mean, I guess unless you're Muslim, it's free to worship the way you want. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, and I mean that as a joke. That was yeah, a, a yeah. dark, no, I know. A very yeah. dark. Yeah. yeah, no, we understand the political climate right it's now. A t- it's yeah. a time-stamped statement, right? Um, but uh, yeah, people are free to worship the way that they want and make however they get through their life, you know? Mm-hmm. And when you said like, oh, they were proud of your career, what did your life, what was your life looking like in those 10 years? I mean, well, I went to work for Black Diamond. Okay, you were working for BD. So I studied graphic design. Because we still didn't really have much of a framework for a professional climber at that point. No, and the thing is, is like, it didn't ever really make sense for me to, you know, shoe contracts were coming with like, $50 $50 a month, gas money or yeah, whatever. Right. And some shoes, yeah. Uh, that's not really going to work for me. Right. So, you know, uh, you know, we've come a long way and people can make a living wage. And even like root, head root setters in 2016 are making a living wage, you know, a real, a real legitimate wage. Um, climbers can make a living climbing and, and that's great. Um, it wasn't like that when I was, when I was climbing. I think, you know, Lynn Hill deservedly, you know, made a living um, at climbing and a decent one, I think, and a few of the Europeans. Um, but a lot yeah, of people, I, that, I feel like Lynn's po- the possibilities were her. She had those roots in Europe, in terms. Well, of, she also yeah. did the nose, and she mm-hmm. did, and she was great, mm-hmm. and she was friggin' Lynn Hill. I mean, she's yeah. a she's a total badass, and she was you know deserving of everything that she got, and that's great, and um, and. Uh, but it wasn't like that for me. I always aspired to more than I don't need much in my life. I don't. I'm, I don't necessarily care too much about accumulation of stuff, and that's. But I. I need to be creative. I need to be stimulated. I love. I love cities as much as I love the the hills, the mountainsides, and the and the and the coastlines. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I. I find a lot of adventure in cities. I need art in my life and culture. Um. And things like that, and you know, it's important. There's a there's a there's a balance that I I I didn't really ever just want to live out of a tent my whole life. Sure. Even though I'm okay with the simple life, I I don't need more than a tent. It's just that I I, there's it's a fine balance, right? It's like Mm -hmm. a it's on my rest days I wanted to do something meaningful, Mm -hmm. which was you know help design shoes and and carabiners and 
gear and i and you know that's what i did for black diamond is help to steer the sport from a from a marketing standpoint and a and a gear development standpoint and things like that well it's, I, when you said that it, it sort of occurred to me you know not necessarily for the first time i don't know but is that the other thing that happened with sport climbing a little bit and with bouldering cuz you were just talking about also you know you guys were on kind of a wave of of when bouldering became a thing of its own of its own sort of uh its own genre if you will of yeah. climbing or whatever but you know you that made this generation and we talk about the gym generations now you know coming that who never even climbed outside but you guys kind of broke that mountain man mold you know you broke a little bit not you specifically but that your generation of yeah. like early sport climbers like that you were you know some sort of you know hardy mountain man that that you know, would just as soon, you know, live in a cave than than participate in society. But, you know, a lot like skate culture like that brought music to, in a way, to the scene. We and were super influenced and, by that. Yeah, yep. and, and you guys, you know, you didn't go into the mountains for three weeks to get your route done. You went for the afternoon and yep. climbed. And, like, it's a new, it was, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it was a new cultural way of looking at climbing. For sure. That you could have your, you could have your toes in all these different things yep. versus like, I'm like this crusty mountain man that's going to, you know, come back with a beard and, and a wild look in my eyes after going out climbing. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, so. exactly. I mean, it was, I always joked, you know, I want to, I want to sleep in my bed at night. You know what I mean? I want to try to crush these sport climbs or these boulders or whatever and i want to you know go hang with my friends and have a nice dinner and sleep in my bed you mm -hmm. know and and it's not like i need that it's not like i need pampering it's just that was just the climbing wasn't you're right it wasn't i don't i don't need to get it doesn't need to be a three-week beard growing endeavor um it's not it <laughs> it's not you know i'm it was just uh it was integrated into a in a, into what i would consider for me it was an additive it was additive in, into an already other otherwise pretty rich life mm -hmm. that i tried to carve out for myself right you know that's it you know and it's still it's still a really important part of that balance for me as we discussed earlier so you are now making you know you've been talking about graphic art and design but you're now making a living primarily as a photographer a hundred percent a hundred percent and uh, I do some, I do some other sort of marketing consulting and mm -hmm. some, I, I'm, you know, I, I have a pretty eclectic skill set and background. Mm -hmm. And so I'm able to, um, help to try to put some good ideas together, um, out there. But yeah, I mean, most, most of my income, most of my income is, is from photography and other types of storytelling video occasionally mm -hmm. stuff like that and i kind of read uh so you don't have to necessarily repeat it but that you felt like not necessarily like photography was this thing that you know lit you up right from the beginning but you kind of like seg segged your way into it yeah you know and it became this way to make some money and and here and there what what does it do for you now in terms of like you know now that it is your living and and you have an artistic eye for it um you know, is it is it a just a job? Is it super fulfilling in its own right? Oh Does no, Does it get no. you around the world? No, what it's sort not. Of things it's like not that? just a job. I mean, it's it's like I I it's something I crave. I I need to do something creative, and you know, photography allows me what. So so all of these years climbing and all of these experiences I've had, the most important takeaway for me and the things that I remember most are the friends that I've met, met and the places that I've been. And the experience that I've had while while climbing. I mean, there's a few distant memories of like, you know, accomplishing some things like on the crag, at the crag that are really important to me. Mm -hmm. But those are really, really minimal compared to like all the places I've been and all the friends that I've made and all of that. And so what I what my what my takeaway from all of that is is it's important for me to stay on the road and sort of and and be creative those mm -hmm. you know and and climbing for me was a creative outlet when i was doing it we were creating you know bolting roots we were looking at impossible looking lines and trying to figure out a path way up them and trying to trying to get that done so i feel like that was a really creative endeavor um 
you know, putting the bolts in the right place and blah, 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 you know, kind of uncovering these roots. Right. Um, and, and like, as my career, as my climbing kind of as well, you know, as the kids, you know, IE Sharma and et cetera, Tommy and all those guys sort of came along and like sort of told us what time it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> showed us what time it right. was, you know, it's like, okay, my job right now is kind of graphic design and product design. And that's happening behind a lot of largely behind a desk and kind of in behind closed doors. Right. And, um, but Hey, you know, maybe if I turn to photography, you know, I can still travel and, and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. that was a huge um, influence on the reason that I kind of switched from, you know, switched up my creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. It, when you're in the mode, when you're creating, uh, what do you think is important to you about the medium in terms of your photography? Like, obviously... I guess the way I want to put this is that photography has changed so much, you know, in the last 15 years with digital photography, with cameras, you know, making life so much easier for everyone. You know, honestly, like a guy like Epperson has to look at a smartphone and just be like, oh, God, where was this thing, you know, 30 yeah, yeah. years ago? Yeah. Um, although he could do astounding things with sli- with slide film. For sure. But, yeah, uh, yeah. And maybe made him a better photographer. That's a whole other debate. But so what do you think you're looking for composing or whatever else that sets you apart or you think might set you apart from the masses clicking out their photos? I mean, it's pretty easy to get a mediocre climbing photo these days if you've got an angle. Yeah. Um, But, you know, do you have an idea, not necessarily what makes you better, quote unquote, but what are you trying to do uh, when when you're shooting that you think is going to make your stuff uh, more noticeable, if you will. Well, I'm, I'm trying to add. So, so I was a photo editor for years and years at black diamond. That was one of my main tasks. So I was a photo editor and I, and I poured over climbing photography um, and, you know, thousands and thousands of slides a year um, and finding the right, the right shot. It was like a needle in a haystack. Right. And, and, and also going back while I was studying graphic design, I also studied, traditional photography Mm -hmm. and it never occurred to me to be a photographer because it seemed to be extremely expensive the people you know the the photographers that i knew were the people that my dad associated with and they had you know these giant you know large format cameras and tripods and these dark rooms and sophisticated lighting and it just seemed it just didn't seem right for me you know what i mean like it seemed like something else and i don't know why it why editorial Bill Hatcher and Beth Wald style photography didn't occur to me. And Epperson's a really good friend of mine and Kevin Powell and these old school film shooters. Like, I don't know why it didn't occur to me to do it, but it just never did. I was just so wrapped up in climbing, but I, I under, I, I understand. I understood photography from the film side of things and the dark and spending time in the dark room developing, you know, art, artful photography. And, when I, what influences me in photography is probably I'm most influenced by like 1950s and 60s fashion photography. People like Richard Avedon are like, is a, is a huge influence to me and, and on my work. And I, I don't even really look at what is happening in the outdoor or the, or that, that community too much for inspiration. I mean, I love what my, what my what Kempel and Lidzinski and all these guys are doing, you know, everyone has a great eye. And but what I'm trying to do is is a little bit different, and I'm playing a little bit more, I think, with shutter speed and you know blurred edges and and um, my work is definitely more impressionistic and mm-hmm. it, I think graphically really really simple. I hope I strive for that. Like the the color space has to be right and the background. It, I just don't like clutter. And I, mm-hmm. and it's sometimes on these limestone cliffs, it's tough to get that. I like a clean, really clean shot. What does, I don't know what sets me apart, you know, but it's, but it's definitely trying to find the essence of what it feels like to be in this situation okay. and not necessarily just a snapshot of it. And I, I, you know, and I, I have failed miserably often mm-hmm. and I have succeeded wildly 
at, at times. Right. You know what I mean? And it's a, I am not that, I am not that just F8 and be there guy. Like that does not, that's not really what drives me. You know, I want to, I want to find, I want to find those moments that are really, really fleeting and, and hard to, and hard to get. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. And I want to get them in it in a way that's really unique. That's, that's what I, that's what I search for when, right. especially when I'm shooting climbing. Are you shooting surfing now too? Well, when I, I mean, can, than, than as when I can, but, but right now it's really funny, man, because I don't want to bother shooting when I'm at the beach because I want to be surfing. Right. Well, it's and the same reason you weren't I didn't shooting shoot when you were climbing. The, yeah. Back when I was climbing, it's mm-hmm. the same thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like I'm doing these trips with Sharma and, you know, I'm clearly like the worst climber on the trip and I'm 40 years old and I've got, you know, and I become obsessed with the, with this other aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So right now, what I'm, what's, I'm obsessed about with surfing is the learning curve of surfing itself and being mm-hmm. and, and participating in the sport. Um, but you know, I've I've gone out on big days. I went out with Randy Levitt a few years ago and shot some really great big surf fo- photos in at Toto Santos on a legendary day. And you know those those photos of those photos are great. They're still some of my favorite mm-hmm. work. You know, and if I went out to, I'd love to go out to and shoot at Jaws or Chopo and on the right day right, or right. whatever. You know, like when I'm definitely not surfing. You know, when it's like. 50 foot faces that's the kind of stuff i want to shoot <laughs> it seems like it'd be scary to even be out there i mean i guess everybody knows where to be but it's, every once in a while on like on the on youtube you see some some you know shot of where somebody's boat was in the wrong spot and it yeah. gets totally destroyed or flipped upside down yeah you don't else. want to be there <laughs> and at the same time like you feel it feels like not i'm not too stressed about it that's cool you know it's i don't think that it feels Stressful. If you've spent time in the surf and you understand how yeah, these waves and sure. how this stuff works, there's not that much to be worried about until it's probably too late. Right. <laughs> what kind of surf? Like a, w- w- five? What surfer are you? Would you put yourself at? I'm approaching five ten, probably. Nice. That's pretty badass. It's you know for an old dude le- learned you mm-hmm. know in his late thirties mm-hmm. um, and had a major fear of the ocean go- getting started mm-hmm. um, and. And it seemed very complex, and you know, I couldn't even really swim when I started surfing. And so, what? Wait, wait, wait. A long. We have to take a moment there. So, what was it? <laughs> I mean, was it just like this? Looks like has multiple levels of challenge. So I'm gonna go learn how to swim while I surf in in this this thing that yeah, I'm. Yeah, I probably of. learned how to swim better by paddling right. around than I did like actually going to the swimming pool. I mean, I have a lot of, I have a bunch of swimming or a bunch of um, surfing mentors that are. Was it like circumstantial? Did you just have an opportunity to try it and love it? Or was, did you like wake up one day and was like, that's my jam. Circumstantial loved, loved it. Loved the challenge. um, Loved the demystification of something that seemed so ominous and scary to me. Um, and and yeah, I mean it. You know, systematically just demystified all the scariest right. things about it. Yeah, and it's and it's amazing now. You know, it's just uh, it's just I feel a hundred percent peaceful out there. I'm still not. You know, I'm, I I really like hanging out with watermen and and actually seeing how they operate in the in the water. And um, um, had a great experience last year to go to the uh, French Polynesia and spent some time with some real watermen there and, and like really kind of just glean, you know, some, whatever you can. Yeah. And, and it's, and it is a process of demystification. I mean, it's, it's pretty predictable. You know what I mean? It's like, if you spend time in the ocean, you, it, it seems kind of absurd to be afraid of sharks, for instance. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there's just like, I fly on an airplane. I might, the drive, even, you know, let alone in Mexico, it's definitely the most dangerous part of the drive is definitely oh, yeah, the most sure. dangerous Mexico, part geez, of the yeah. experience. But in Oregon, it's arguable that the, the driving from Portland to the beach, that 70 mile stretch is way more dangerous than mm-hmm. the surfing, you know, right. and that's something that just becomes routine, right? Well, we should know that as climbers because we get the same 
thing from the people outside looking in. Yeah. You know, that you were out, out, all out there risking our lives. It's like, no, I went to rifle for three hours today and did three pitches. Like, it's I'm fine. Definitely. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna really be okay. risky. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, you like to let them believe it's, you know, I just sure, and like, let, risk my life. Yeah, I guess. Sure, sure. <laughs> but it's like going to the climbing gym. I mean, are you really, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, no, it's not really that risky. Well, that's cool. I, I we, we could talk for the for another hour about this because I just read uh, Bill Finnegan's um, Barbarian Days. Oh, sweet! Like yeah, I yeah. just finished it. It's like, kind of three going days making ago. the rounds, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. Was it what a, what a great book? I, I I just I wonder if it's out there. I haven't read it, but someone who can who can talk about climbing like that. Um, I don't know if it's out there. I I just finished it and I was kind of thinking like he talked about surfing in a way. I mean, I surfed, I've surfed a handful of times and just so compelling and just kind of so nailed it all Yeah, for a, for a wider audience. Yeah. Um, I have not without read make, it. You know, without like, without kind of uh, treading in the cliches and sort of using that, like I just said, like what everybody thinks about it, it's good for business to let everybody think that way about it. Yeah. But he, yeah, it's a pretty amazing book. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's a it's a lifestyle choice, mm-hmm. you know? Well, um, I've always, I've done a lot of talk about the similarities to climbing in that sense. It's yeah. a lifestyle sport. It's a sport, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's also got that like main vein addiction quality that for sure very few things have the way climbing and for the way sure. surfing does. I mean, know? it's crazy now. It's not enough for me to just go out and surf in the waves uh, now I'm like at the point where it's like, there's no swell, you know, it's like, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> wait, when's the swell coming? You know? And it's like, how was your trip to Mexico last week? And I was just, you know, I, I'm just like, Hey, it was great. We had three proper swells come through mm-hmm. and like, you know, eight out of 25 days of really, really great surfing, you right. know, where it was really pumping and yeah. it was fun, you yeah. know? Um, That's not troubling. Like the whole waiting around, like nothing happening. Because, I mean, I always joked, it's like surfing's like if, you know, you just go to rifle one day and it's not there. And then the next day it's not there. And the next day it's not there. And then it's there, but it's actually only 20 feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like- yeah, I know. It's and, it, and, you know, it's like all of that, all of that is part of it. You heard and, it was and there. The, and, the, and part of that is also learning who you are and dealing with disappointment and you know it's like you can spin all these experiences that we put ourselves into that you can spin them negatively or positive and i i think i'm just inherently like pretty positive guy so it's like nobody wants to sit on a plane but i think of 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 like sitting on a plane is just an opportunity to stay chilled out right you know what i mean it's like you have to stay chilled out and just just not worry about when you're landing just like minute by minute right so you just sit there and just kind of meditate on this idea that you can't change it you just have to come to peace with it mm-hmm. or you, and if you fight it it just the flight ends up just being so long right 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 so, yeah. so or you make everyone else miserable too. yeah because you're all like fidgety and stuff i don't know that i've ever really pushed anybody on this so i'm gonna try it you know you've got this place in history of climbing you're not i don't think a you know, just a, you're not a Messner type name or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. You've got this place in the history of climbing. You were there in the beginning of the sport climbing, you know, the bouldering craze also. Uh, you guys here, you know, with Joe's Valley and some of these places. I mean, it was post Waco, but still. What do you think, like, maybe a moment of pride in your legacy? Um, I don't know if we're talking about a route you did or a place you developed or something you think you added to the culture. Um, do you ever think about that without, without being too modest? Well, I just think, you know, you think, and this is something that I learned from Bill Boyle, you know, that, that mentor that was, mm-hmm. you know, 15 or so years older than I was, he was a psychologist and I, and he always, he always just said, you'll always be judged by the body of your work. You know what I mean? Always. And so it's like, you know, and I and 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 that was in terms of like whether you not you did a Chaucie route or whatever. You mm-hmm. know, it's like it's like uh, you'll always be looked at. Your leg, my legacy will be the body of my work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I mean, I think people can pinpoint a few things that sort of gives me a little bit of street cred. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think the people that know me the best and that know my history will look back on how 
just the different places that I had a, had some kind of an influence mm-hmm. the overall body of, right. the, of the work right from 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 developing areas to the documenting the new ones mm-hmm. these days and you know products right boulder, you know the earliest bouldering mats and the shoe development and wiregate carabiners I was on that team you know when that when that was all it was Andrew McLean's idea but it was like our team at Black Diamond that, that did that Sure. That made that a reality. And there was a lot of deliberation about whether or not Wiregate carabiners would ever have a place in the market. Right. You know? And so things like that, you know, I think, Mm -hmm. I think I, that's, I think I have a pretty wide, wide reaching imprint on the development of the sport and especially indoor climbing. Right. Yeah. Cause weren't, you were part of the early, some early hold companies. Pusher. Yeah. You were part of Pusher. Yeah. Right. And we, we were, we were the first company to actually make holds that you couldn't hold on to. And, you know, you make big holds, uh, you know, and, and what, what eventually influenced volumes and things like that. I mm-hmm. mean, um, but slopey holds that you couldn't really hold on to and, and went from like these grips to features and things like that, right. you know, influenced by what we were doing outside. Yeah. Or wanted to do outside. And wanted to and do outside. Do yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, indoor climbing is, it's the new way. I mean, it's, no, you know, it's got, it's now we have climbing is going to be part of the olympics and, right and um it's influencing urban culture and you know urban cl- culture is influencing the sport of climbing and you know those worlds are colliding now mm-hmm. you know and it's it's really important for our community to um pass along a really an environmentally conscious ethos to the people that come into the sport i think and um try to you know hopefully through climbing, the world can become a, even a better place. Well, awesome. We're good, man. I really appreciate you sitting down, Boone. And uh, we hadn't met before a few minutes ago. Yeah. And although we've got, you know, as usual in this climbing world, we have multiple uh, mutual friends. Yeah. And I really appreciate you giving, giving us an hour. It's yeah, been awesome sure. talking to you. For sure. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been great. Okay, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Boone for sitting down. Very generous with his time and forthcoming with his thoughts. Kind of living the dream life, that guy. I love talking to a guy for whom sport climbing 13B anytime, anywhere would be a little bit of a downgrade for him. Still a life dream goal over here at the Enormacast. But anyhow, moving on. It's getting to be springtime in the Rockies, lovers. So remember... Stay alive again in 2017 by being safer than you were last year. Yes, safer this season. And start, of course, by checking your knot. best in life to crush your enemies see them driven before you and to hear a lamentation of your women that is good that is good